So we have been in this series in the Gospel of Mark uh, for the past few months as a church. We're calling this series Jesus, Con or King, kind of looking at the life of Jesus saying, okay, who is he? Can we trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus or do Christians just kind of uh, get easily duped? Have they, have they been tricked? Have what we as Christians, for those in the room that are Christians, has what we now believe about Jesus, has that kind of come about just through legends and, and fables? So um, we're in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 9 now. I'm going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, feel free to turn there. Uh, we tend to read from the English uh, Standard Version of the Bible here. And uh, we will have the, the, uh, the, the words on the screen here behind me as I read this. So this is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 2.13 says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him J- Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what, he, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right, let's just pray together, and we'll look into this for a few minutes. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, God, we just, I just want to start this morning by thanking you for the country that we live in, God. Uh, God, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us as a nation. God, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us as a nation. God, for the comforts that we enjoy in Canada, certainly here in Ottawa as well, for the, the protections and the privileges that we enjoy. And God, in a, a weekend where we celebrate our nation, uh, God, we don't want to take it for granted. God, we know that there are many around the world who do not enjoy the same protections, who do not, do not enjoy the same comforts. God, we don't want to waste these protections. We don't want to waste these comforts. Certainly those of us that are Christians, we don't want to waste the freedom that we have to speak openly about Jesus Christ. And God, I include myself in that. God, I pray this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help me to speak openly about Jesus Christ, that he would be seen, that he would be known, that he would be understood even by some here for the very first time this morning. So Holy Spirit, we invite you again. We say that this is for the glory of Jesus And we thank you in advance for what you're already doing and are going to do in this place. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you braved the hill yesterday. I was on the CBC website last night and uh, saw that there were a lot of uh, 
rather grumpy people, uh, people that stood in lines for four or five hours in the pouring rain. Maybe that were, uh, was uh, some of you. Um, if you did make it up onto the hill, you know that uh, yesterday we had a, a higher than, than usual number of uh, celebrities uh, visiting Ottawa and, and performing yesterday. I was watching the highlights of Bono and the Edge uh, performing up there. Also, uh, last night, just on television, watched the uh, Cirque du Soleil performance, which was just phenomenal. I don't know how many of you uh, saw that either on television or actually up out the hill. My goodness, it was incredible uh, what they were doing. And then loads of other performances um, as well. I don't know how many of you have actually had run-ins with celebrities, like whether you've actually bumped into celebrities at any point in your life. The closest that I can come to, this is a very Canadian celebrity. My friend Brendan and I uh, were, walking on, uh, we were walking on Metcalf just south of the hill a few weeks ago, and we walked by David Suzuki. How many of you know who David Suzuki is? All right? Like, seriously, we walked by him, and, like, the trucks that were idling nearby just stopped. The birds started flying overhead. The sun shone a little bit brighter. The air was cleaner. It was incredible walking by David Suzuki. He was just carrying a briefcase on his way to who knows where. That's the closest I've come to meeting kind of a, uh, a celebrity uh, in Ottawa. But I don't know if you have stories of meeting celebrities. Maybe if you have, you've met a celebrity and have embarrassed yourself a little bit. I know online you can find stories about all sorts of things. So I've actually come across a few embarrassing celebrity Stories. You'll see where I'm going with this, but uh, you might enjoy some of these, all right? So here are a few embarrassing celebrity stories. This is one. This person says, My mom saw Richard Gere at a Whole Foods and went up to him and said, Aren't you Harrison Ford? (laughs) Another one. I saw Mel Gibson in Rome when I was in high school. He was eating at a sidewalk cafe, and I meant to just wave, but for some reason blurted out, Braveheart! And a bunch of people turned and recognized him. Angered with the attention I brought to his lunch, he glared at me with such a look of hatred, I thought he might actually get up and come after me. I like this one. One day at a grocery store, I saw Selena Gomez. I was a huge fan of hers. So I went up and tried to talk to her, but tripped over my shoelace and fell flat on my face right in front of her. All I could say was, you're pretty. And then I ran away. (laughs) Um, Matt, I'm sorry that happened to you, man. That's really embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Matt doesn't know who Selena Gomez is, I assure you that. Okay, I met Jack Black two summers ago at a sushi restaurant. I was so starstruck and panicked that the first thing that came out of my mouth while I shook his hand was, your performance in Nacho Libre was nothing less than Oscar-worthy. <laughs> if, you've seen Oscar, uh, if you've seen Nacho Libre, you know why that's funny. Uh, my brother accidentally punched Bruce Springsteen in the face while he was running down the aisle at Jazz Fest. And... Uh, My wife loves this film, so she'll appreciate this one. I told Busy Phillips I watch White Chicks at least once a week, and she told me that's the most pathetic thing she's ever heard. (laughs) So there you go. A few embarrassing celebrity stories. Well, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, in Mark chapter 9, Peter has an embarrassing celebrity story, believe it or not. He really does. He has an embarrassing celebrity story. Now, Peter, we've, we've come to know him as the Apostle Peter or Saint Peter today, but when he first met Jesus, he was just an ordinary fisherman, and he's spending time with Jesus. And when uh, the events that we're reading in these verses take place, it kind of marked the end of what was a pretty rough week for Peter, a pretty rough few days. So we read that six days earlier, uh, Jesus told him and the other disciples that he, Jesus, would have to suffer and die and that he would be raised to life three days later. And Peter just can't handle it, because Peter, as a Jewish man, he was waiting for the Messiah to come. 
He was waiting for a Savior, a promised Savior to come. And the reason the Jews at that time, including Peter, were so desperate for their Messiah, so desperate for their Savior, was because they were under Rome's thumb. They were being ruled by Roman overlords, and they couldn't stand it. They wanted their freedom. They wanted their liberation. So when Jesus came, over time, Peter works out that Jesus is the Messiah, And Jesus asks Peter who he thinks he is, and Peter actually gives that answer. You are the Christ. That's that's a a translation, a Greek translation of the word for Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the son of the living God. Peter's clocked it. He's worked it out. But Peter can't handle that Jesus has said that he has to die. Why can't Peter handle it? Because for Peter, he doesn't want his Savior to die. He wants his Savior to come in and crush and, and, and remove the Romans to hear that a Savior would come and would die. Peter just couldn't handle that, so he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And Jesus, in return, because it's the cross that was at stake, Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter. And Peter is put rightly in his place because Jesus is so fixed on the cross, he's unwilling to entertain thoughts of being distracted from it. He knew that the cross was at the very center of God's plan for salvation for Peter, for you, and for me. Now, six days later, we get to the verses that we're reading right now. Jesus takes his kind of inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and he takes them up a mountain. And while they're up this mountain, there's something incredible that happens that has since been called the transfiguration. That's kind of putting the the church history or or the religious language to this event. But Jesus is transfigured. In Mark 9, verse 3 and 4, it says this, And his, Jesus's, clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, this would have been mind-blowing for Peter. This would have been truly mind-blowing for Peter, seeing this. For the first time, this Jesus that he had met beside a lake when Jesus said, Come and follow me. This Jesus that would have been walking around the region, spending time on foot, spending time in boats, just spending time in many ways doing everyday things. Suddenly, Peter sees this Jesus when he's transfigured like he had never, ever seen Jesus before. Now, for those of you that have grown up in a Christian environment, for many of you at least, this is a bit of a tricky concept. Because we've grown up with something that I'll refer to as Sunday school Jesus. We've grown up with a Jesus who's, who doesn't look like an everyday kind of man. So I just, I just did a quick kind of Google image search. So this is kind of the first one that we've got. So this Jesus here, you know, the, the robes that he's wearing in this, in this painting are, are, are perfectly white. They're kind of spotless. For me in the church that I grew up in, I was used to seeing this kind of Jesus every single week. And they had what was called a flannel board. Did any of you go to church that had a flannel board? I don't know what is up with flannel boards. That, that, that is like the most archaic of technologies that is out there. Let's take a piece of felt and make it Jesus and animals and stick it to a board. It's just weird, okay? Anyway, I had images like this on a flannel board during my childhood. And, and you have, I mean, this kid who sat to the right of Jesus' right knee just looks angry. He's having a rough day, this kid up here, I think. And the other ones are just looking kind of so intently up there at Jesus. Go to the, go to the next image. So here we have another one that's, 
that's kind of similar. I think my favorite thing about this image is the couple that are on the right, they kind of look like they've walked through the photograph of the awkward time, which was basically me all day yesterday for tourists all across Ottawa getting caught in the middle of these photos. But these are kind of the images that we grow up with. If you've grown up in a, in a Christian environment, you have this idea of a Jesus who's, who's in many ways already glowing. In many ways, he sort of already looks like he's this permanent kind of transfigured Jesus. But the Bible talks about Jesus in a very, very different way. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah, the prophet, prophesies about Jesus, including the appearance of Jesus. He says this. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So this Jesus, this Jesus who normally had no form or majesty that we should desire him, no beauty that we should desire him, he just looked like an average Jewish man in first century Palestine. He, he, he wouldn't have stuck out physically, in any way, shape, or form, this Jesus is then transfigured. And it's mind-blowing for Peter watching this. Mark records, Mark's actually recording Peter's version of the story, and he says that his clothes became just like white, like nobody else could ever bleach them. I remember when I was younger, I spilt bleach on a pair of jeans and then stuck them in the wash right away and I had these blue jeans with these massive white like spotless white patches imagine a white piece of clothing like covered in bleach how white that would be and Peter's saying through Mark who's kind of his scribe he's saying that Jesus's clothes shone whiter than anybody could ever bleach that in Matthew's gospel Matthew even gives a little bit more details to, to the story saying that Jesus's face shone whiter than the sun brighter than the sun and Peter's watching this takes, take place. Now, as I said, we've come to know this whole story as the transfiguration. And transfiguration is an interesting word because we could easily confuse it with being transformed. But transfiguration and transformation are very different things. When somebody is transformed, we could, we could kind of say they're changed from the inside. There's a changing that takes place. Paul, in one of his letters in the New Testament of the Bible, encourages, encourages us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's transformation. But transfiguration is different. I know we're getting a little bit technical here, but this matters a lot. Transfiguration is different because when Jesus was transfigured, his appearance, the way that he was seen by Peter, James, and John, changed drastically, but his substance who he was remained exactly the same. 100% God and 100% man. The duality of Christ is called. It's a mystery to us. But we mustn't think that during the transfiguration that Jesus suddenly became more God. He didn't. He was just as much God then as he was when he was with his friends walking in the countryside, feeding crowds, or spending time in boats. And seeing this, Peter just can't find his words. He totally loses his words. He fumbles through, and the very first sentence that comes to his mind is nothing less than hilarious when you really think of it. So Peter's watching this take place, 
And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Teacher, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Like, what? <laughs> what? I don't know if you've been in situations where, where, where you've, you've thought, I need to say something, and the first thing out of your mouth is just strange or peculiar. This is exactly what is going on for Peter. Peter, why would you say that? Why would you say that? Well, we know why Peter said that. Mark tells us. Peter said it because he was afraid. He's watching this incredible thing take place in front of him. He's like, my goodness, I have never, like, what is happening? So he kind of blurts out this comment, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents for you, one for you, one for Moses, and, and one for Elijah. Now, the interesting thing about Peter's comment is that for him, seeing Moses would have been like seeing the law. I mean, like Moses was, was kind of the, 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 the scribe, the writer, in many ways, kind of the father of the law. And Elijah was like one of the prophets. I mean, like one of the, one of the biggie prophets that the Jews, they, they knew his writings. They took it really, really seriously. So to see Moses and Elijah was essentially for Peter, James, and John. It was kind of like seeing the law with Jesus and the prophets like Jesus. And we kind of get a bit of a glimpse into Peter's mind because he's kind of compartmentalized these different things. He kind of sees the law as one thing and the prophets as one thing and Jesus as one thing. But what he fails to recognize is that in Jesus, in the gospel, there's no need for three different tabernacles. There's no need for three different tents because in Jesus, the law comes together with the prophets. They come together seamlessly and perfectly in their fullness in Jesus Christ. So even though his comment is, is kind of in a bit of a panic and not really knowing what to say, it does give us a bit of a glimpse into the way that he thinks. And you know what? We can think the same way. We can think that the law of God, you know, the earliest books of the Bible... The stuff that, you know, for those Christians that I'm going to do the Bible in a year, you kind of get going, hey, Genesis, that's kind of cool. There's an old dude that likes wine, and he makes a big boat, and he does all this sort of stuff. That's kind of cool reading, and they made a movie about that with the guy that was Jim Carrey, and, or Jim, the guy that was Jim Carrey, who's also Jim Carrey, uh, yeah, coincidentally. Uh, so we know those stories, but then we get to Leviticus. We don't like Leviticus very much. We don't talk to our friends about Leviticus. There's some, there's some tough things in Leviticus because that's a law of God, and it's awkward, and it's strange. We can compartmentalize. <laughs> I've chosen the wrong word. We can compartmentalize. We can break these things out in our own minds in a similar way that Peter does, where we treat them differently. Friends, what we need to understand is that in Jesus, the law and the prophets come together in their fullness in Jesus Christ, and these three tents, these three tabernacles, find their one home in what? In the church. In the church. We are the body of Jesus, the church. So do we take the law seriously? Yeah, we do. Do we take the prophets seriously? Yeah, we do. How do we see these things? We see them through Jesus Christ in light of the gospel, in light of the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Now, Peter speaks this thing and, and, and kind of fumbles through his words, and then there's this booming voice from heaven. This booming voice from heaven, God the Father speaking over his Son. And he speaks something very, very similar to what he spoke at the baptism of Jesus. And God the Father says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. Now, when Jesus was baptized, the Father said, this is my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased, or in you I am well pleased. Fascinating, isn't it? The Father says that over Jesus before Jesus' ministry even started. And we looked at this many months ago. For those of us in leadership in this church or in any other setting, we need to be quick to be encouraging people around us and letting them know that we're proud of them and we value them before they lift a finger, (laughs) not after. And that's what the Father does for Jesus. Even before Jesus, the perfect Son of God, lifts a finger in ministry, the Father says to him, you are my Son and you I am well pleased. Now fast forward a while to the transfiguration of Jesus, and the Father speaks again. And what does he say? Maybe he's going to say something different. Maybe he's going to add to the story. You know what? Largely, he says the exact same thing again. He affirms his Son. He affirms his Son. This is my beloved son. But then a correction for Peter and for the disciples and for us this morning. Listen to him. Listen to him. This Jesus is worth listening to. Again, we can see how easy it is for us to kind of be like Peter. As we've been going through this series, we've seen many different examples of how there's a bit of Peter in each of us. Throughout church history, through various influences of uh, the Roman Catholic Church and other groups of churches who take these men and, and refer to them as saints and speak about them in a way where they can do no wrong, we actually end up moving away from this book. This book is very honest about Peter. In fact, Peter is very honest about Peter. The other apostles are very honest about themselves. Paul, read Paul's letters. Read St. Paul's letters. Read how he speaks about himself. Friends, let's be very careful to raise these men as the heroes of the Bible. There is one hero of the Bible. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is not Peter. And we can find ourselves that we can be like Peter again in this situation. Peter's response is, Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, it's good that we're here. Man, that has just seeped into Western church culture where sometimes we gather, sometimes we get around the church, sometimes we gather together for worship, and deep down we can have this attitude in approaching God of going, you know what, it's a good thing we're here. It's a good thing that we can come, that we, that God, it's, it's good that you've got us, because I'm, I'm a good Canadian, I'm, I'm moral, I'm, I'm, I'm upright, I, I do the right things, I give a lot of money to charity and to the church, and I, I help my neighbors, and I do all of these good things, and I've never cheated on my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my spouse or... I haven't, I haven't even been on bad websites or I haven't, you know, said nasty things about people. So God, it's good that you've got me. It's good that I'm here. I don't know about you, but I find that that can even seep into me at times. Even, you know, I'm a church pastor. You know what? I can still have that attitude sometimes. Oh God, it's, it's good that you've got Grace City Church in Ottawa. No, you know what? It's good that we have Jesus. (laughs) It's good that Jesus is here. It's good that Jesus is here. Jesus doesn't need us to help him with anything. Jesus doesn't need us to help him with anything, but he invites us to join him in everything. Not because we're needed, but because he is gracious. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus told his disciples, don't speak about what you've seen to anybody. Don't speak about this until after the resurrection. Jesus knew that without the evidence of the resurrection, people just would not, they'd, they'd go, what, transfiguration? 
Elijah, Moses, those guys have been dead for a long time. What are you talking about? This doesn't make sense. You're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. But in light of the resurrection, if Jesus puts a death on a Roman cross, comes back to life three days later, if that's possible, then as we talk about the transfiguration, the transfiguration is possible as well. Anything is possible if this God can raise Jesus to life after three days. So Jesus tells his disciples not to speak about it until after the resurrection. Now, I want to end by highlighting something that Mark doesn't specifically refer to himself, but that would have most likely been on Peter, James, and John's mind because they were Jews. Jews at that time, if you were to speak to them about a mountain, the first mountain that would pop into their mind, even if you said the word, was a mountain called Mount Zion. It was another term for Jerusalem, the city of God. It was where the Jewish people of the time and in many ways still today, saw the, uh, the, the, the culmination of their history. It's where they saw their, 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 their destiny um, kind of ending, kind of where they were going. It was, it was all to arrive at Mount Zion, the mountain of God in Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of Zion. So for Peter, James, and John to see Jesus transfigured If they knew in advance that that was going to be happening, they would have thought, well, it's going to happen on Mount Zion because that's our story. That's our mountain. That's where this would definitely take place. But we know from what Mark says a few verses earlier that that's not where they were. They were in a region called Caesarea Philippi. It was quite a ways north, slightly northeast. Not only that, but it was in a region where people worshipped other gods. Some people worshipped the Roman emperor Caesar himself. Other people worship Baal. Other, worship, other people worship a Greek god named Pan. Now, scholars have their thoughts on, about which mountain this took place on. We don't know exactly. We don't know for certain. But we do know the region where the mountain was, and we do know who the people in that region worshipped. And they did not worship Yahweh. They did not worship the God of the Bible. Yet still, it's on that mountain It's on that pagan mountain. It's on that mountain in the area where people worship other gods that God, in his grace, chose to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to his disciples. And Peter, this has had a huge impact on him because much later in Peter's life, when he's writing one of his own letters, 2 Peter, this is what he has to say in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. And with the transfiguration in mind, listen to these verses. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter speaking literally. We were literally eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him, By the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The holy mountain. Friends, a pagan mountain can be made holy. And you know what that means? A pagan city can be made holy. Grace City Church, we love this city. 
man, I don't know about you, but 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 when I was look, I, this will apply to many of you. When I was walking around town yesterday, even with the crowds, even with the craziness, I was pushing this stroller that has a wheelbase about this wide. You haven't lived in Ottawa on Canada Day until you got to maneuver something this wide through the streets of Ottawa on Canada Day. But even still, I was looking around the city, going, man, I love this city. I love this city. But you know what? Yesterday I was walking over in the market area with our family and we were walking through Inspiration Village, it's called. Many of you have visited it over the past few days. And I looked over and there's a, uh, there's a strip club right beside Inspiration Village and looked to be three or four floors above the strip club. And in one of the windows there were two women peering out of the windows looking out over Inspiration Village. Now, I can't come to conclusions about who they were or what they do for work. I don't know. I don't know whether the other parts of that building are affiliated with the strip club or not. I don't know. But what I do know, the look on their face wasn't terribly inspiring. And whether they are affiliated with the sex industry in Ottawa or not, I don't know. But I know that there are many in this city who are. There's an underbelly to this city that, as a city, we don't like to talk about because Ottawa is the capital city. And there's a lot of money in Ottawa. There's a lot of education in Ottawa. There's a lot of title in Ottawa. There's a lot of uh, prestige, power. So we don't like talking about some of the very serious problems that we have as a city. As a city, we worship a number of pagan gods. Our gods aren't called Pan, the Greek god that was worshipped on what is thought to be the mountain where this took place. Our gods, or god isn't called Baal. Our god is called Sex. Our God is called money. Our God is called achievement. Our God is called me. And we place ourselves at the very center of our own universes. And we worship ourselves or we worship these other things. But if a pagan mountain can be made holy and is talked about in holy scripture as a holy mountain, then the city of Ottawa because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, can also be made holy. And it means we don't need to run and hide from Ottawa. We don't need to be Christians who try to escape the city and get way outside of the city and just kind of huddle in our own little holy huddle and sing our little worship songs together while the city burns, while people worship their gods on a a fast-track trajectory towards hell. It means that we can be in the city. We can be in the center of the city. It means I can be in a room and preaching in front of 200 liquor bottles. It means that we can rent a venue where last night at 2 in the morning, I'll tell you, it was not Yahweh that was being worshipped in this room. I know that much. It means that we can engage with the city where people are worshipping many other gods and we can do it all with hope. Because a pagan mountain can be declared holy and a pagan city can be declared holy. Why? Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What he did on the cross is that big, is that great, greater than the law, greater than the prophets. Jesus, Jesus Christ.